If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In Pope Urban II's speech at the Council of Clermont, the call to crusade which ignited the idea of holy war in the minds of Western Europe, the so-called evil infidels are described as having driven good Christian brethren from their homes by any means necessary. Everything from pillaging and the destruction of holy altars to extreme torture and gruesome deaths. However, when the armed pilgrims of the First Crusade crossed over into Asia Minor, the situation was not as they had been led to believe, not least because they found a Christian population living right alongside their supposed mortal enemies. I'm Emily Briffitts, and in this new History Extra podcast series, we'll be travelling back in time to walk in the footsteps of the Crusaders as we trace the story of the First Crusade, taking in their triumphs and failures, witnessing the hardships they faced, and seeing the landscapes they traversed through their eyes. We'll also be taking in the perspective of those who lived in the Holy Land and the regions the armed pilgrims passed through, speaking to a range of top historical experts to challenge some of the most popular perceptions about the Crusades. And to top this all off, We'll be delving into the chronicles and revealing just why we continue to talk about the Crusades to this day. In this third episode, we follow the Crusaders from hardship to hardship as they face their first conflict and struggle across Asia Minor on their way to the Levant, meeting the people who lived there and taking in their view of the Crusade along the way. Before we take a deep dive into some of the key themes, once again, we'll be joining our trusty travelling companion, Jonathan Phillips, Professor of Crusading History at Royal Holloway, University of London, on this journey to the Middle East. We're picking up where we left off. The Crusaders have bid farewell to Constantinople and the Byzantine Emperor Alexius I Komnenos. In the early summer of 1097, the armies of the First Crusade crossed the Bosphorus into Muslim-controlled lands in Asia Minor. Who were they going to meet? 
Well, Alexius would have given them a good briefing, of course, as to what the situation was in the Muslim world, and it was one that was incredibly favourable to the First Crusaders. They were extraordinarily fortunate in the political situation that they encountered. Basic division in the Muslim world then as now is between the Sunnis and the Shiites. The Sunnis controlled through the Caliph of Baghdad most of the Near East. The Seljuk Turks were the dominant force there. The Shiites with their Caliph in Cairo based in Egypt and it's the Fatimid dynasty. Some splinter groups within the Shiites as well just to complicate things further. The Sunnis were the dominant group undoubtedly in terms of numbers and the territory. They controlled Asia Minor the First Crusaders' initial target. But what had changed, what was so important and so fortunate for the First Crusaders, was what had happened in the immediate years beforehand. A contemporary poet wrote of 1094, it was the year of the death of caliphs and commanders. And that brilliantly pithy soundbite encompasses the chaos that roared across the Muslim Near East at the time. 1092, the vizier Nizam al-Mulk was murdered by the assassins. He'd been effectively the prime minister of the Seljuk lands for 30 years. The Sultan Malik Shah, 20 years in office, he died, his wife and his grandson died as well. In 1094, the Sunni Caliph of Baghdad died. And in the Shiite lands, the Fatimid Caliph after 58 years died and the vizier soon afterwards. So what this means is that in the space of a couple of years, the leadership across the Muslim Near East had been removed. All those decades of experience and centralizing authority was wiped out. As a result, there's a fragmentation, particularly in the Seljuk Turkish lands. Rivalries that have built up over decades spilled over. Brothers are fighting brothers. There is a fragmentation of authority. It atomizes lordships, castles, small regional authorities are looking to exploit this vacuum. The Crusaders' arrival at this time of chaotic disorganisation was more a case of luck than of planning. I think it would be no exaggeration to say, had the First Crusade turned up in, say, 1090, I think the Seljuk Turks would have rebuffed the First Crusade reasonably easily. Just under 100 miles from Constantinople lies the city of Nicaea. It's a walled city, great walls, gates, a place of important church councils in 325 and 787. It's also on the edge of a lake. It's somewhere that the Byzantines had ruled as recently as the 1070s. So they would have had a pretty clear idea, having governed it, how to get into it. And a combination of a land siege and using ships on the lake fairly quickly gets into the city and the Turks there surrender, a lot of spoils are taken. So this is an initial success for the Crusaders and the Greeks working together in June 1097. They then move into Asia Minor. This, of course, is the summer, the heat of the summer. And the landscape as you move from Nicaea into the central parts of Asia Minor gets tougher. Near Nicaea, it's fertile. As you go inland, it gets higher, it gets drier, and it gets an awful lot harder going. The Crusaders fairly quickly are confronted again by the Seljuk Turks. There's a battle at a place called Dorylaeum. The Crusaders are just beginning to work out how to operate together. They're like a group of sportsmen who never played together before. They need to start beginning to know what the other one's doing to get hierarchies organized. They're really too used to being independent at this point. And Godfrey and Raymond of Saint-Gilles have got split off 
from the main crusading army. And there, Kilij Arslan, the Seljuk Sultan, confronts them. It looks as if the main army is going to be decimated. He's pushed them back against a marsh. But just in the nick of time, Godfrey and Raymond arrive and their heavy cavalry manages to drive away the Seljuk Turks. That was a close call. But the Crusaders have got through it. They learned from it. But this is all experience. And the course of the First Crusade, one of the reasons it would eventually triumph, is putting all that experience to good use. Moving through Asia Minor, the situation grew increasingly difficult and demanding. The real challenge is not the Seljuk Turks, but it's food. It's the weather, it's a lack of supplies, a lack of water. The poorer pilgrims died in their droves. They just fall by the wayside. All the horses die almost immediately. They're reduced to using pack animals, to ride on pack animals, or many of the nobles and knights walking. Things are discarded. It really is incredibly attritional, moving through the mountains of Central Asia Minor. When they get across towards Southern Asia Minor, there's a split. Baldwin of Boulogne heads eastwards towards Edessa. He goes over the Euphrates, and Edessa is an interesting area. It's ruled by the Armenians, who are a Christian group who would like the help of the Crusaders against the Seljuk Turks. And Baldwin, enterprising, acquisitive, joins with them, and he makes an agreement with a man called Toros, who is the ruler of Edessa, this Armenian territory, and he actually gets adopted as his son in a rather strange ceremony where the two of them share a shirt, which sounds a very curious ritual to engage with. It is actually rather meaningless because fairly quickly, Taurus's people rise against him, Baldwin does little to protect him and immediately takes control of Edessa. So this is a very quick move by the Crusaders by Baldwin. If you're thinking about his religiosity, well, he will eventually get to Jerusalem, but it looks like he's after land first. There's a bit of a strategic eye in this because it's actually shutting off the Seljuks from coming towards Antioch, which is the first real target of the crusade. It's shutting them off a little bit from the north and the east. It's also good land around there for supplies. The other crusading forces move south towards Tarsus, the city of Paul, and towards Mamistra, places on the southern Asia Minor or Turkish coast. And there they squabble amongst themselves quite a bit, they're looking to assert their authority, but they're moving towards Antioch. So there is, if you like, a pincer towards this great city in northern Syria. Struggling across Asia Minor was an incredible test. If some of the Crusaders had been motivated by money, this really is going to change their mind incredibly quickly. This is not an exercise in making money. This is an extraordinarily hard physical challenge. What's driving them forwards had to be something more the ultimate aim of recovering Jerusalem. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. 
Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed this is it the Crusaders have finally made it to Asia Minor and their first major conflict. And to tell us more about what the Crusaders found when they reached Asia Minor, I spoke to Dr Steve Tibble, expert in crusading warfare. The landscape the Crusaders would face was radically different, particularly from those, say, from France or England. You know, this is a very different world. And I think... Because they had no maps, they had really very little idea of where they were going or what they were going to find when they got there. It was shocking. And these are people who they're exhausted. A lot of their friends have already died. They've walked across Europe. They've been in trouble. They've been on near starvation. They've seen things they shouldn't have seen and never wanted to see. And when they get there into Asia Minor, again, you've got a very varied landscape. It's mountain ranges in some places, there's dangerous passes, there's the Mediterranean Sea, there's open areas where, where horses can graze. It's a very wildly different territory from the, the smaller fields of, of Western Europe and the hobbitry kind of background they would have. They've gone from the Shire much closer into something far more dangerous. And then you put over that landscape the other issue of a people that they've never expected or never seen people of nomadic heritage who've got such a different way of life, not just religion. I mean, religion is the least of the issues. It's a massive anthropological shock when these two cultures meet each other and and neither are very good at facing the other. This culture shock is another crucial consideration we can't possibly ignore. Who did the Crusaders meet when on their journey through Asia Minor and the Levant? I put in a call to Suleiman Murad, Myra M. Sampson Professor of Religion at Smith College, and he revealed all. If you want to look at the demographic and the political reality of the Levant, it's extremely, extremely diverse. On the one hand, the overwhelming population in what is today eastern Anatolia, eastern Turkey today, Syria, Palestine, were Christians. And that's often not considered when you are talking about the Levant. You know, we, we say the Crusaders invaded the Islamic world. What do we mean by the Islamic world? Is this because of the people were Muslims or is this because the Muslims were ruling it? Actually, it's because the Muslims were ruling it. The majority of the populations were Christians in large cities and in the rural areas. Uh, and here, Christians, you have the Orthodox, you have lots of Arabs who have been Christians for a long time, and they remained so, but most of the populations were not of Arab origins. So you have Armenians, you have lots of Syriac-speaking people, 
These were traditionally non-Arabs. They lived there before the coming of the Muslims to occupy this part in the 7th century. And these were uh, varieties of Orthodox sects, Orthodox Christian sects. And if you move southward, you might come into contact with people who might follow actually the Greek Orthodox or the Byzantine Orthodox Church. So that's on the Christian front. On the Muslim front, the large number of Muslims in what we call Syria, uh, greater Syria, that is Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria, and Israel today, the majority of the Muslims were actually Shiites. Three different types of Shiites were living there. The Sunnis had a presence, but their presence was very sporadic and probably only in and around major cities like Damascus. So th- this is the kind of reality. And when the Seljuks came in starting in 1071 and they controlled this geography, even as Sunnis, they were practicing a form of Sunnism, often is we call it Hanafi Sunni Islam, that wasn't either present or powerful in that area. And they directly came into problems with the local Sunni populations who practiced other forms of Sunni Islam, especially, for instance, in the city of Damascus. So here you are talking about complexity and diversity that belies this kind of generalization that we throw about the region. Suleiman referred there to Sunnis and Shiites. So let's explore these groups in greater depth. Similar to the split between Eastern and Western Christianity at this time, Islam was also divided into several religious subsections. Sunni Islam is largely a conglomerate of movements. We can approximate it like modern Protestantism in the way that they are factions that they decided to coalesce under one umbrella around the 9th century. And this is contrasted to Shia Islam, which started much earlier as a political movement and gradually created, if one were to say, its religious backbone, its religious skeleton, also around the 9th century. And each one has its own version of Islamic history, especially the formative period, that is employed for its own religious arguments and for religious empowerment and cause. The Sunnis largely emphasize on what we call orthopraxy. That is, religion is primarily about certain set of behaviors that you have to do as a Muslim. And therefore, your life is to supposedly aspire to do them correctly. Shia Islam, however, is more about orthodoxy, that is belief. And you have to believe that God chose certain families, certain individuals. It is the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad who are supposed to lead the Muslims. And on the political front, the Sunnis said, no, it is a community that decides who rules over it. It's not God who decides the name of the ruler or the specific. So that, that's essentially the main distinction. But over time, there are lots of things that start to be added to this split. Alongside these religious subsections, there are also several empires we should know about while we're here. The Seljuk Empire, ruled by a Turkic sultan, and the Fatimid Caliphate, ruled by their titular dynasty. And they both followed a different strand of Islam. I'd recommend remembering these for later. The Fatimids are a dynasty of Shiite Muslims that started roughly in the early 
10th century in what is today Tunisia, that is in central North Africa. And later in that centuries, around the 960s, they moved eastward. In 969, they occupied Egypt. So they established a caliphate. It was a caliphate in opposition to the Sunni caliphate that was already in Baghdad. And they were able actually to occupy most of what we call Western Arabia, Palestine, Syria, and definitely Egypt. And up till the coming of the Crusades, they were an extremely powerful caliphate empire in the Eastern Mediterranean, commercially and militarily. Then on the other side, in terms of Sunnism, the time of the arrival of the Crusades in the late 11th century, we see the emergence of a Sunni dynasty from Central Asia originally. It starts moving in the 1040s, called the Seljuks. These are Turks or Turkic people from Central Asia. So the Turkic people in Central Asia were very divided. Some have already become Muslims, others not. There were lots of animosities between them. And the Seljuks were able actually to defeat most of their enemies and create a unity among the Turkic groups, and they used the power of that unity to invade, largely westward. So they invaded what is today Iran, Iraq, and they kept pushing. They defeated the Byzantines in the major battle of Manzikert in 1071, and that opened up for them eastern Anatolia and definitely Syria. And they even actually, they occupied Jerusalem and They thought they want to end the Fatimids, but they were not successful. But here you have essentially the Fatimids retreating largely to Egypt around the time of the coming of the Crusades and the Seljuk occupying most of Syria. It's been suggested that a defining factor that shaped the course of the Crusade was the division between Sunni and Shiite Muslims at this time. However, according to Suleiman, it wasn't necessarily a fight between two branches of Islam more a fragmentation of authority within both. The division between Sunnis and Shias, or the animosity between Sunni and Shias, is blown out of historical reality and how accuracy, in the sense that it's not true that Sunnis and Shias were always enemies of each other. For instance, the Fatimids, at one point during the Crusader period, they hired Sunnis to be their prime ministers, so to speak. And we have equivalent in, say, in the Abbasid court. The Abbasids were Sunnis, and sometimes they hired Shia as their lead ministers. If you go translated down on the level of the average people, also cities like Baghdad were largely the Muslims there were either Sunnis or Shias, and they coexisted. Damascus was divided between Sunnis and Shias, Aleppo, etc. So there are large periods of Islamic history where Sunnis and Shias lived together without necessarily killing each other. But there were other moments when there were religious tensions. And we know that religious tensions sometimes use history, use those divisions in order to fuel religious strife. It's not that because of religious strife, these tensions are happening. And my opinion, this division of Sunnism and Shiism, when it comes to the Crusader period, largely has no relevance in terms of explaining why certain things happen, it can explain other things in terms of context, reception, reaction to the Crusades, the reality of the Muslim world, but it won't really explain why the Crusades happened. On that note, how did local populations actually react to the Crusaders arriving on their doorstep? 
we have some evidence that the news was traveling ahead of them as the crusaders were marching through. And we also know that the crusaders themselves started corresponding with some of the local leaders at the time there. So it's not a secret that there was an invasion that was taking place. And like anything today, one has to expect that some people knew ahead of time and probably planned. Some people were surprised because they probably were too busy doing other things. We have, for instance, some of the contemporary chronicles tell us that people were fleeing away. Some people were afraid that massacres are going to happen. Other people were not concerned because they thought they could do some deals with the crusaders. And, you know, often it really revolves around who was ruling where and how they were disposed to, for instance, doing peace with the crusaders or fighting the crusaders. And that's tricky because the region did not have a unified political ruler. Eastern Anatolia and Syria, Palestine at that time did not have a single ruler ruling over all over it to say, yeah, I can deal with the crusaders and find a solution for all of this area. Every town had its own military leader and every town decided what to do. And that also translated on what would happen to the local population. While a lack of unified leadership was going to prove a problem for the local populations, passing through a region with such a varied and diverse population turned out to be a boon to the Crusaders. It's much more complex than you might think. And although the interests of all these groups were never aligned, you know, the, the Byzantines had a different agenda to the Crusaders, the Crusaders had a different agenda to the local Christian communities, there were many things that they had in common and which bound them. And the Turks hadn't always been seen as the most congenial rulers. So in, in some senses, in some parts of, of the Middle East, the, the Crusaders were welcomed. Nowhere were these mixed aims, ambitions, fears and desires of the Crusaders and the local populations they encountered more apparent than at the Siege of Nicaea in the summer of 1097. As Jonathan Phillips mentioned earlier, the city lay just under a hundred miles from Constantinople and had been taken from the Byzantines by the Seljuk Turks in 1081. Byzantine Emperor Alexius I Komnenos wanted the city back and was about to do something the Crusaders were not going to be happy with. Over to our resident Byzantine experts, Jonathan Harris, Professor of the History of Byzantium at Royal Holloway, University of London. The Crusaders have, have come to Constantinople. The next stage is to get across the Bosphorus, which they do. They're ferried across by Byzantine vessels. And the first objective is the town of Nicaea, which had been in Turkish hands since 1078. And so off they, they arrive, they surround the place and invest it. The Byzantines, meanwhile, launch ships onto Lake Nicaea to cut it off from the lakeside. And there's the Turkish garrison. They're there for six weeks. And the Byzantines then say, why don't we talk? And the fact is, this is perfectly normal in the Middle Ages. I know Hollywood movies always love, you know, scenes where cities are taken by storm and people swarming over the walls with ladders and siege engines and all the rest of it. That was quite rare. If a relieving force didn't turn up, it was expected the garrison normally did surrender. Um, so a Turkish relieving force did turn up. The Crusaders saw it off. 
So the Turkish garrison think, oh, hey, we've got no chance now. Sooner or later, the food will run out. And what we don't want to do is for the Crusaders to get in by force, because then by the laws of war, they can do anything they like. They can kill us, they can enslave us, they can do what they want. So they're very happy to talk to Alexius and they surrender to him. So far, so good. This is all perfectly normal. It's true that some Crusaders are a bit disappointed because the fact is that if a city surrenders, you can't plunder it because basically you have to agree that their lives and property will be safe. And Alexius gave the Turks in the city the choice. You can either have safe conduct back to Turkish territory or you can join my army. And a lot of them did join his army. And this is something the Crusaders didn't like. Thinking, well, why does the emperor have infidels in his army? And the Byzantines are perfectly cool with that. They'll employ good soldiers. They don't care what your religion is. Whereas the Crusaders, who are on this religious mission, see this as distinctly sinister. So this is where the two agendas are popping up. This religious mission to get to Jerusalem and the more practical one of just reconquering Asia Minor. These Turks are good soldiers. They held us off for six weeks. I may as well have them in my army. So I suppose that's why there's a certain amount of resentment. But I think the resentment over Nicaea might be victim of a certain amount of hindsight from the Chronicles. Remember in our last episode how Emperor Alexius had asked the leaders of the Crusade to sign an oath of fealty to him before they left Constantinople? Well, he was going to ask them to swear once more. So Nicaea has been taken. It falls in June 1097. Alexius's troops moves in. Good, that's part of Asia Minor restored to the Byzantine Empire. But Alexius is still anxious to make sure he keeps control of these people for as long as he can. So he says, why don't we meet quite near to Nicaea? There's a town called Pelicanon. Come along and meet me there. And the crusade leaders turn up. Alexius gives them lots of gifts of money to make up for the fact they hadn't been able to sack Nicaea. And then he says, now some of you haven't sworn the oath yet, have you? Like you, Tancred, who basically dressed up in disguise and crossed the Bosphorus to avoid doing so. So, Tancred, please, could you now swear the oath? And he's really not keen on swearing this oath at all. And he says, well, what will you give me if I swear the oath? And Alexia says, you know I'm generous. I will see you right. Just say what you want. And Tancred says, OK, I'll have your tent then. And Alexius does have this very beautiful tent. I mean, it's a huge, great thing, a sort of marquee kind of thing, very richly decorated. And Alexius's face falls and he's furious because he doesn't want to give up his tent. And there's a terrible row. And actually, Tancred gets into a kind of fist fight with one of Alexius's relatives and the two have to be separated. And it's all very embarrassing. But in the end, basically, the crusade leaders say to Tancred, look, just swear the damn oath. We want to get on. So he swears. Okay, so Alexius has now got the oath. Great. So he's keeping control. But then, of course, comes the the question that he's been dreading. And the leaders say, you'll be coming with us, of course, to Jerusalem. Ah, uh, well, yes. Thing is, I'm a little tied up here, says Alexius at the moment. And there's a lot of threats to Constantinople. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a small force of Byzantine troops. They, They can come with you and I'll follow on later. All right. And in the meantime, I'll look after things here. And when things have settled down, then I'll follow on. Is that all right? And well, it had to be all right, really, because they, they couldn't wait. They had to move on. So, so off they go from Pelicano. And that's the last time the leaders see Alexius, many of them. And off they go. They head east and he goes back to Constantinople. With Alexius gone, the Crusaders continued onwards alone, down through Asia Minor. 
But how exactly do you get such a large army back on the move? I asked Steve. It's very easy to underestimate the problems that such a large but under-resourced army would face in moving. So these, these are very relatively primitive times. And it's very slow moving, slow going. When you're walking in foreign territory at the end of what passes for a tiny supply line, things are always going to be difficult. You can imagine the logistical nightmare of moving such a disorganized, relatively undisciplined army across roads that probably hadn't seen any repairs in two or three hundred years. I mean, we're still talking about the Roman road network here. And, you know, that's some of that would be a thousand years old at this point. So you find that they often march a few kilometers a day, 10, 15, occasionally 20 kilometers a day. But then they might spend three or four days resting in a place that had good water, good supplies. And they were, in, were not in a massive hurry. As the First Crusade comes to its end, the whole expedition speeds up. The campaign was proving tough on the Crusaders. And on top of the gruelling journey, they also needed to establish and sustain the vital support line, providing them with food and resources. Supply was always a problem. And there are several ways that you could help the process, but none of them were ideal. And all of them were relatively primitive by our standards. The best way, and this is true pretty much until the beginning of industrialization in Europe, is by water. So water is very good. It's a good way of transporting things. And that's one reason why you quite often find crusader armies traveling near water. The crusaders were lucky in that they had various small fleets to help them. The Italians were incredibly helpful and they had trading interests in doing so, but they were also able to ship over large amounts of goods to keep the army on, on the road. So water and boats, very, very helpful. There are also foraging and foragers. We, you know, you can imagine, it sounds fine if you just talk about foraging in the round. In reality, on the ground, it was stealing people's food, maybe destroying their properties while it happened. You wouldn't want to do that if it was your land and you were going to be there forever. But if you're just passing through, you're much less inhibited about gathering everything that you can. The third way that you could supply armies was to have carts and, and wagons. And, and certainly all of the armies had those. The trouble with that was that these carts and wagons need to be pulled by animals and those animals need to eat the same as everybody else and they eat quite a lot so they're only effective up to a certain point because it continually needs to be resupplied clearly the militarization of western europe gave the crusaders a strong background in strategy and logistics so basically nowadays to be a member of the elite there are many points of entry in the 11th century what the elite had to do was to be military because it was a protection racket. The, effectively, the social contract was that they lived off the meagre productivity of the land and in return they gave protection to the people that they had under them. And this, this protection that they offered had to be based on warfare. That was the primary protection they offered, security. And knights really were judged by their military prowess. And uh, so there was, there was a kind of a, a violence inherent in that system, as in most parts of the world. Where they were very militarized in an effective way was that they were very good heavy cavalry. So you had the knights were very effective as shock cavalry. And occasionally they had infantry that were good heavy infantry as well. So when you had two different European armies facing each other, they had a, a level of military understanding and they could, you know, they could fight well 
if you call it well, against each other. The problem with the Crusades was that even these relatively experienced military folk, when they went on crusade, what they didn't fully appreciate was that warfare in the Middle East was so very different. And it was basically because they were facing people from a nomadic background. And having come from a sedentary society, the crusaders soon found that this nomadic lifestyle of their main opponents, the Seljuk Turks, gave them an approach to warfare that was unlike anything they'd ever come up against before. This was something they learned the hard way at the Battle of Doraleum later in the summer of 1097. It's a fundamentally very different lifestyle. And you find that in a nomadic society such as the Turks, it's a lifestyle that produces very tough people, people who are very resourceful, very hardy, and they make great warriors. So their lifestyle means that they are very good at riding, they're used to herding animals, and that can be transferred into herding people as one of their primary tactics. It means that they're almost at one with their horses. And you put a bow in their hands, they are probably the best light cavalry on the planet. So a nomadic society has a a level of mobility that Europeans couldn't even dream of. They'd never encountered it, by and large. But a sedentary society obviously has different pros and cons. So in terms of the pros, a sedentary society is quite productive. So they have more metal workers, they can produce more kits of armour. So sedentary societies tend to produce infantry who've got shields and mail shirts and helmets and they pace along slowly and it produces heavy cavalry, which we call knights. And they can be hugely effective. So you get this this strange circumstance where the best heavy cavalry are meeting the best light cavalry, but to a large extent, they don't know how to deal with each other. And it produces a very high level of risk. It's, It's one of the main factors why there were so few battles and so many sieges. Because in a situation where you don't really have a a sense of the range of outcomes, a lot of people are motivated not to take part in a battle. So, for instance, when when crusaders meet the Turks, they tend to dance around each other. So both sides are quite nervous. So there was a very quick learning curve to be carried up. And that's why the First Crusade took so many casualties, really, I think. There was a kind of Darwinistic process where huge numbers of people died in the process of learning. But it also explains why the First Crusade was so powerful by the time it got to the end. Because because of this Darwinistic process, the, the survivors had the best armor, they had the best skills, they were hugely experienced, and they'd, they'd been able to work out how to deal with the Turks. I mean, this had been a very expensive process. A lot of people died so that they could learn those lessons. But through blood, energy, pain, they had finally made it. We often hear of the Crusades as a bloody clash of civilizations, pitched between the forces of Christianity and Islam. However, when you take a closer look, the picture doesn't seem to be quite that clear. I asked Suleiman how far we should see this campaign as a holy war. To what extent the Crusades is a war between religions? This is a very legitimate question. And actually, religion had a huge role to play in the initiation of the Crusades and the maintenance of the Crusades, and at some point in determining the reaction of the Muslims, or at least some of the Muslims. At the beginning, the Muslims were confused. And the Muslims in the Levant, they had just been invaded by the Seljuks. So 
the crusaders coming, it's another invader. So they didn't directly react to the crusaders. Oh, these are Christians and these are worse enemies than the Seljuks. No, they're like, oh gosh, another people invading us? We barely survived the Seljuks and here is another one. But this attitude was something that changed in the years that followed the First Crusade. Gradually, you have a group of definitely religious scholars starting to organize a line that tries to tie what was happening to a religious grievance, so to speak. That you know, these are Christians occupying our lands. We have to liberate this land, and how do we liberate it by taking up the cause of jihad? So here you start having largely Sunni scholars in the big cities trying to push for unification of the Muslim areas and for adopting this jihad ideology in order to push against the crusaders. But we know that the problem with that is that, one, largely the Muslims were not that receptive for it, in the sense that, you know, the Muslims didn't want to fight. Now hold up. Before we look too far into the future, let's focus back in on the 11th century and our titular First Crusade. How far did the Christian crusading forces view their campaign as a war of religion? Obviously, the papacy was a major player in initiating crusader campaigns and maintaining and legitimizing them, etc. But even the leaders and the average people who were fighting, they blended you know, the, the, this kind of zealotness to, uh, for political, social, economic, you know, whatever you call it, better role and achievements. At the same time, they were very spiritual. They were very religious themselves, right? So you cannot say that the Crusaders was not a religiously influenced clash. And the reaction of the Muslims, you cannot say it wasn't partly informed by religion. But I don't think religion only informed the war aspect of it, right? We seems to have only a tendency to tie religion to violence. And then when we see other things, we say, oh, religion doesn't have a a role there. Actually, religion had a role in lots of scenarios where Christians and Muslims, and by extension Jews, in a place like Acre, in a place like Jerusalem, seems to have accepted each other practicing religion in the same place. Before we finish up, let's just check back in with the Crusaders. Where were they now? Well, so far, they'd captured the city of Nicaea and seen off the Turkish forces of Kilijarslan. They even had the city of Edessa in their hands. As they crossed into the Levant, the next mark in their line of sight was the hugely impressive and intensely fortified city of Antioch. Little did they know that the biggest test of their faith was soon to come. Many thanks to my experts for today's episode, Professor Jonathan Phillips, Dr. Steve Tibble, Professor Suleiman Murad, and Professor Jonathan Harris. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Additional checks by Daniel Adamson. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. 
I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.